Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Hey, everybody. Uh, boy, we got, a, we got a great one today for a change. Mm-mm. A Peter Galbraith. Uh, who's one of these people who was in the Foreign Service for decades. You saw some Foreign Service people at this, uh, in these hearings, and they're magnificent, as you can see, and Peter is. And Peter has a long uh, relationship with the Kurds. So among the awful, terrible things that Donald Trump has done, and, and this might be the worst in a way, is that he sold out the Kurds, who uh, were our ally and who bled and died for us. Peter has um, tremendous insight into this, and we'll be talking to him. But first, I just want to talk about the hearings. I'm just going to play a couple clips. I was just so, so frustrated that uh, Democrats played it so classy. Adam Schiff, brilliant, classy, not one Democrat reacted to the stupid shit that the Republicans were saying. They should have had a designated guy, a guy, an enforcer. And, and you'll, you'll understand what I mean. So uh, let's play a few of these clips, and I'll, I'll try to react to them. Okay, the first one we're going to do is uh, uh, Republican Congressman Chris Stewart of uh, Utah, who makes— a very, very um, stupid point. Takes a little while doing it, but they had to kill time. They had nothing to say. <laughs> so all they would do is say these uh, insanely, obviously stupid things. Here we go. question before us now is, again, extortion. That's the, that's the latest version of the charges against the president. I'm not an attorney. Extortion sounds pretty scary. It's kind of serious. I had to look it up, what it means. It means obtaining money or property by threat to a victim's property or loved ones. Mr. Ambassador, I'm going to read you a couple quotes from President Zelensky and then ask you a question. First, from a Ukrainian press release, Donald Trump is convinced that the new Ukrainian government will be able to quickly improve the image of Ukraine, complete investigation of corruption, which inhibited the interaction between Ukraine and the USA. Does that sound like President Zelensky is being bribed or extorted in that comment? Uh, as I testified uh, previously, I'm not a lawyer either, and I don't want to characterize well, okay. any, any legal terms. That, I really don't. That's fine. I think most people would read that and say, that doesn't sound like he's under severe pressure. He makes it very clear in his own words then. Ukrainian President Zelensky told reporters during a joint press conference with Donald Trump that he was not pressured by the U.S. president. Again, I was not pressured. He used another time. There was no blackmail. I would ask you, do you think he felt like he was being extorted by the president based on these comments? I really think that's for the committee and the Congress to... Well, you know what, uh, Mr. Ambassador, it's really for the American people. I agree. And the American people aren't stupid. And the American people can hear that and they can say, I don't think he was under duress. I don't think he was being extorted. I don't think there was an exchange of a bribe. He says that the American people aren't stupid. Well, you know... There are some American people who are stupid. They just are. There's, it's a bell curve, right? We have a bell curve. And then there are, are the people that are even on the good side of the bell curve who can fool themselves and say, I want him to be innocent. It, once I tell myself I should believe something, I do believe it. That's me. And I'm smart. On IQ tests, I'm smart. <laughs> Character? Mm-hmm. Below the bell curve, below the bell curve, I mean, below the top there. Hey, Gavolt. Wow, 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 wow. 
But Sondland goes like, I'll let the American people decide. I'm not going to get into that. Why didn't Sondland go, idiot? (laughs) He can't say that. You moron. I guess he wants, he's still the ambassador of the EU. That's amazing. I wonder how long that's going to last. It'd be funny if it just keep, you know, because he gets rid of him, then he's going to go like, you know what? I, I also had my memory uh, <laughs> refreshed again. I, I hit my uh, head on a on a on a wall, and a lot of things came back to me. And what would a review of these uh, hearings be without a clip from Jim Jordan? And he he does this along the same lines. Uh, it's basically. Why didn't Zelensky bring it up? He had a chance. But it seems to me the one that's the most important is probably the one we've talked least about, and that's the September 5th meeting. This is the meeting where Senators Murphy, Senators Murphy and Johnson, bipartisan, meet with President Zelensky. And what's interesting is what both senators in the last two days have given us letters recounting what happened in that meeting. Senator Murphy said, I broached the topic of pressure on Zelensky from Rudy Giuliani and the president's other emissaries to launch investigations of Trump's political rival. Murphy brought it up. He brought, you got two senators who both strong supporters of money going to Ukraine. These guys are all for it. And Senator Murphy, the Democrat, even brings up the issue everyone's been talking about. It seems to me if ever there was going to be a time where the president of Ukraine says, Guys, you don't know what I'm dealing with. I'm getting pressure from the President of the United States. He wants me to do this. i got to make it an... It seems if ever there was a time that the President of Ukraine, the new guy, who now knows the aid has been on, on hold, if ever there was a time to bring it up, that would have been the time. He is basically saying that Zelensky said he wasn't under pressure, Of course Zelensky said that. He can't say, no, I'm being blackmailed by the president of the United States. And having said that, I expect to get nothing for the rest of the time I'm president. And the people uh, in Ukraine will throw me out for saying that because it's so stupid to say it. My God. Well, either you are stupid or, or you're just dishonest. I just went right to stupid. But he could just be. It didn't sound to me like this was a crafty thing. This sounded like, hey, uh, Zelensky uh, said uh, there was no pressure on him. So um, as I read the situation, him saying over and over again, no, there was no pressure on me. There was no, you know, I wasn't being uh, shaken down. Uh, this wasn't extortion. There was no quid pro quo. Jeez. Okay, let, let's let's get off that dumb point so that it doesn't make it sound like they just made that dumb point. Here's one where Castor, the, the that's the Republican counsel, who um, I think had nothing, and so every once in a while uh, was phoning it in, I think. So he is... Talking to Sondland. Sondland is testifying, and he has his long question period with Sondland. And here, let's listen. Senator Johnson um, states, or he writes, I asked him, the president, whether there was some kind of arrangement where Ukraine would take some action and the hold would be lifted. Without hesitation, President Trump immediately denied such an arrangement existed. And Senator Johnson quotes the president as saying, No. And he he prefaced it with a a different word. Um, No way. I would never do that. Who told you that? Senator Johnson says, I have accurately characterized the president's reaction as adamant, vehement, and angry. Senator Johnson's telephone call with the president wasn't a public event. It it was capturing a genuine... uh, you know, moment with the president. And, And he had, at this point in time, on August 31st, he was adamant, vehement, and angry that there was no connections to, to aid. There were no preconditions. Yeah, I had my meeting with Senator Johnson where, again, I had made the presumption that I had made to both Mr. Yermak and the email I had sent to 
Secretary Pompeo, and we were sort of ruminating about what was going on, and Senator Johnson, I believe, said, I'm going to call President Trump, you know, and find out. And then he obviously had that phone call. I wasn't involved in that phone call. Okay. But you have no reason to disbelieve that wasn't the way it went down, right? No, no reason to disbelieve okay. Senator Johnson. No, uh, Johnson uh, probably wouldn't have any uh, reason to lie to Sondland. Uh, let me ask you this, though, uh, Mr. Sondland. Uh, would Trump have any reason to lie to Johnson? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he would. Uh-huh. And is Johnson the smartest member of the Senate? Uh, no. No, he is not. Um, let me ask you this. Has Trump ever lied before? Yes. Um, does he lie all the time? Yes. Does he lie even when he has no reason to lie? Yes, he does. So when he says no and he's angry about it, could he be like doing a little play acting because, you know, you talk about how a businessman, like when he's going to give a check to somebody and that guy owes him something, he wants the check back. You know, would it be possible that a businessman who does that kind of thing would also lie at some point? You know, mischaracterize what's going on, not say the truth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My God, why didn't. Why didn't Schiff allow somebody to be the point man and go, come on, come on, really, really? The, the thing is, is that Schiff and the Democrats set a whole tone here, which I objected to, basically, which is dignified. And they would not point out this stuff and I suppose they said, well, you know, we just want to get the testimony. We just want to get it down on the record. You had a lot of time. Every once in a while, someone could have just pointed out how ridiculous and dishonest and stupid this shit was. Really? Uh, so Zelensky, you know, when he was asked, he said there was no pressure from Trump. Yeah, yeah, he never said it. I'm Zelensky, that's proof. That's proof that Zelensky wasn't pressured by Trump is because he didn't tell us he was. Uh-huh. Let me ask you this. If you're Zelensky and you want help from the United States, do you want to piss off the president of the United States? No. And would it piss off the president of the United States saying, yeah, he's shaking me down. Trump's shaking me down. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, I'm so stupid. Jesus Christ. We have uh, Peter Galbraith. He was a foreign service person for, I don't know, 25 years, something like that. And in, in that service, got to know the Kurds very well, the leadership of the Kurds and the Kurds. President Trump has done there in Syria and the way he's betrayed our allies, the Kurds, is just stupid and tragic. It's clearly tragic. It's going to undermine us for years and years and years. You don't do this to an ally. The Kurds died. 11,000 Kurds died fighting ISIS. ISIS was not their fight in Syria. They fought and got the Kurdistan part of Syria. And then the U.S. said, could you, we don't want a lot of boots on the ground. So uh, you're there anyway. You're great fighters. Uh, would you go after ISIS? And they did. And effectively wiped it out. In fact, didn't Trump brag a lot about how he effectively wiped out ISIS? Well, that was the Kurds. And 11,000 died. That's more than more U.S. soldiers died in Iraq and Afghanistan combined. They did this because they felt, well, okay, um, 
the U.S. is a good ally to have. The United States is a good ally to have. So we will do this. And uh, and Trump did this. And I uh, after a phone call with Erdogan. Well, we got a good one for a change. Here we go. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example, let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that, means, that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com With me is uh, Peter Galbraith, Ambassador Peter Galbraith. You were Ambassador to uh, Croatia. Yes. Were you subsequently you were in Afghanistan as what? I was uh, Assistant Secretary General of the United Nations, so uh, the number two in the UN mission, which was a very large uh, mission uh, intended to stabilize the country, and this was in 2009. Okay. And how's that going? <laughs> uh, never mind. Uh, I, the reason I want to, uh, that I asked Peter to join me here is really to talk about the Kurds. Because Peter, I, I know, has had a very close relationship. Is that fair to say? I think that's fair to say. With the Kurds since uh, 1987. Seven. You have a perspective, I think, on... What I think is just a just a horrible mistake that Trump made to allow Turkey to come in, and that maybe you, you are obviously in agreement with me on that. Of course, but yeah. I I think it's worse than a mistake. Yes, and it implies that there was some accident or uh, or some error of judgment. I think this was very intentional, intentional betrayal of an ally. Our betrayal. The U.S. is betrayal of our ally, the, the Kurds. Yeah, the, the Syrian in, Kurds. In Syria, yeah. Yeah, who, when you're fighting against an enemy, um, in this case the Islamic State, you need both uh, air power, which we provided, but air power alone cannot win a war. You need troops on the ground. And the Kurds provided the troops on the ground uh, over the five-year campaign against the Islamic State from 2014 to March of 2019 of this year. The Kurds suffered 11,000 dead. Now, that, that's more dead than, uh, more than we've lost in both Iraq and Afghanistan. That's right. And in Syria, we had five combat casualties. The U.S. did. Exactly. And in a way, uh, the Kurds in Syria were fighting ISIS on our behalf. Very significantly. Actually, when the U.S. first intervened, it was uh, September of 2014, and the city of Kobani, which is right on the border with Turkey, the, the Turkish border is a wall uh, that is the north end of the city. A physical. Physical wall, like the Berlin Wall. And Kobani was being surrounded by 
Islamic State fighters. And the reason That's ISIS. ISIS. Yeah. And they were using American uh, weapons, uh, weapons that they captured. captured from the Iraqi army, which mm-hmm. had simply surrendered them to ISIS in, in Mosul the previous June. It was clear that there was going to be a bloodbath of this city if, if ISIS took it, but the Kurds were, were resisting heroically. I mean, just to describe the defense, I was in Kobani a year later, and I went to the governor's office, and they showed me uh, the Kurds were on the roof of the building. ISIS was on the first floor. The governor's office was on the second floor, and they were fighting from the roof through the governor's office to the first floor. The, the, the second floor was completely destroyed. And, of course, the, the defenders on the roof had no escape. I mean, it was either withstand ISIS or die. And they did succeed in, in that building, but they took a large number of casualties. In order to prevent ISIS from overrunning Kobani, President Obama took the decision to intervene, first with U.S. air power and then with airdrops. And so in that sense, this began with the U.S. helping the Kurds. But once the Kurds had defeated ISIS attacking Kobani and recovered the Kurdish villages around, they had recovered all the territory that was of interest to them. But the U.S. said, we would like you to continue the fight until you've eradicated the Islamic State. And so the war continued for another nearly four years in which the Kurds were fighting to take territory, Arab territory that ISIS held. Uh, And that's where they took the bulk of the casualties. We induced them to continue the war and then once they defeated ISIS, which was in March of 2019 with the last uh, ISIS uh, village fell, a place called Barguz, uh, basically then in uh, October, Trump said, we're done with you. Uh, and Turkey, you're welcome to come in. Which is an amazing betrayal. And, and just to get this straight, after Kobani and, and those villages were secured and their Kurdistan part of Syria was secured, they were fighting ISIS so that we didn't have to send troops in there. That, that, that's exactly right. And, uh, of course, there's a moral matter. When, when you have an ally, a partner, you, you don't just betray them. I mean, they're, they're, and that it's, seems very out of character with what, at least the United States that I believe, that I've served for... 24 years as a, as a diplomat or public servant, that it's, it's contrary to our values, but it's also contrary to our national interest. Uh, Trump says, oh, ISIS is defeated. Well, in fact, uh, there are 14,000 ISIS fighters still at large in Syria and Iraq. The discontent in both countries that created the opportunity for ISIS is still there among the Sunni populations. And there's a good chance that the 10,000 ISIS fighters that the Kurds hold could escape if Turkey's attack continues. Uh, and Some so, have already escaped. And some have already escaped. So what happens if we have to fight ISIS again? We may not have our Kurdish allies on our side. This is what happens if you betray the ally. It means you then have to do it yourself. And, and, and actually, the Kurds have now aligned themselves with Assad. Well, they've had to make a deal with Assad. They they were faced with an attack from Turkey, uh, which um, moved into their territory as an attack that Trump uh, gave a green light to uh, and facilitated. In those circumstances, uh, you you look for help. And the Russians moved very quickly and effectively diplomatically, uh, and they brokered a deal between the Kurds and the uh, Assad regime. Uh, in which uh, Syrian troops returned to this part of the country uh, for the first time, well, since 2012-2013. On October 5th of of this year, Syria was effectively divided along the Euphrates River with the western two-thirds of the country uh, basically controlled by the Syrian government uh, and uh, the ally of Russia and Iran, and one-third was controlled by the Kurds our ally. Uh, uh, who is yeah. our ally. As a result of what Trump did, uh, Assad, uh, the ally of Russia and Iran, now controls, has forces in the entire country, and Russia is along the border. In fact, Russia is in bases that the U.S. built. Um, and they moved in so quickly, because or the U.S. pulled out so quickly, that the Russians are there 
uh, you know, uh, eating the food that the Americans left behind. This is so suspicious in terms of Russia. I, I don't know if you're aware of this, but some people think that Trump, there's some reason that he's doing the bidding of Putin. Have you heard that? Yes, I've heard that, and I, I think it's basically true. I mean, he, certainly he is doing the bidding of, of Putin. That, that is indisputably true. The question is, why is he doing the bidding of, of Putin? Does Putin have something on him? And it's hard to escape the suspicion that perhaps that that's the case. Of course, and we don't want to, you know, there's a lot of conjecture about what that is, whether it's uh, laundered money going to the Trump organization, et cetera, et cetera. But there seems to be uh, sort of a Putin-Trump connection in, in, in some way because this actually helped Assad and uh, Russia, and I guess that means Iran, right? Of course. Since we're talking about this, there's a phone call. Is that it? Erdogan and, and Trump? On October 6th. They have a phone call, and Erdogan tells Trump that he's planning to move into northeast Syria. Now, he'd been threatening to do this for many months. And the U.S., uh, uh, Ambassador James Jeffrey, who had been uh, uh, Trump's special envoy for Syria, he had negotiated a deal in which the Kurds, the, the uh, SDF, the Syrian Democratic Forces, our allies, the, the Kurdish-led force, but actually a force that also includes Arabs and Christians, that they would pull back from the Turkish border uh, and they would remove their heavy weapons uh, uh, for a an area up to five kilometers, and then the heavy weapons would be maybe 20 kilometers out in most places. And then uh, there'd be joint American and Turkish patrols to verify that there were no forces there that might be a threat to Turkey. Uh, not that they were a threat to Turkey. And also the Kurds were uh, told they had to destroy their defenses. They built trenches because they were anticipating a, a, a Turkish attack. So they filled in their trenches. And once all this was done, that there, uh, uh, you know, a deal was in place. Erdogan then calls the Turkish president, calls Trump on the sixth of October, and says that uh, he's intending to evade. And Trump just gives him a green light. Uh, he he uh, Erdogan had asked Trump to remove the American troops. The American troops were intended to be as a tripwire to keep Turkey out. Uh, so he removes the American troops, and Turkey invades uh, on the 9th of October. And uh, does enormous damage, 200,000 refugees, hundreds of people killed, uh, incidentally, in an area that had a lot of Christians. Why would Trump do this? Is, is he enamored with Erdogan because he's an autocrat? Is that part of it? It's hard to know. I mean, he, he, Trump obviously has an affection for autocrats. Uh, he's also somebody. He, he's I'm somebody, sorry, it's just a funny phrase of affection yeah. for autocrats. But okay, he, he, he's somebody who doesn't read his briefing materials, and and so to some degree, you'd say whoever in the staff set up this phone call wasn't very clever because he he knows that Trump's not going to read his talking points, and Trump tends to believe the person he's talking to. So Erdogan charged that the that the Kurds were terrorists that were as bad as ISIS and. And Trump basically agreed with him. Uh, but there may also have been a business interest as well. Trump's, Trump has buildings. Uh, well, Trump's son-in-law and Erdogan's son-in-law have become great friends, and they've also had Trump's son-in-law has been involved in his and Trump's business ventures in Turkey. And and Trump has two towers in, in Istanbul. There, there are two Trump towers, which are licensed arrangements that pay... Well, initially, we're paying uh, $10 million or so to the Trump Organization. So there was that that connection. And I, I think it's fair to say that Trump is somebody who has consistently put his personal business interests ahead of the national interests. I think you saw that uh, quite dramatically when he decided to have the G7 summit at the Doral, the hotel complex that he owns. Yeah. Also, you know, we're uh, Sondland. Who gave him a million dollars for the uh, inaugural, and now his figure is very large in uh, this whole Ukraine thing. I just, 
a million dollars to that inaugural slush fund. It was a slush fund. And I was just thinking about that. Uh, you know, Trump must have been thinking after he got elected, like, how am I going to make money out of being president? Well, why not start on day one? We'll do it at the inaugural committee. I mean, my God. Uh, so we don't know all the factors about why uh, why this happened after this phone call. But the result is really that the United States betrayed the Kurds. Yes. And of course, there's a, another lesson here that everybody notices. In 2015, uh, Assad, the Syrian president, was in danger of losing the Syrian civil war. The opposition forces were in command of Aleppo, the, the, the largest city in Syria. Uh, they were in the, around Damascus, and the Syrian army was falling apart. People were not, you know, who were conscripted were avoiding military service. People who were in the army were deserting. And the Russians intervened militarily, and they saved Assad. What is the lesson that anybody in the Middle East is seeing? Hey, if Russia is your ally, they stand by you even in your darkest hour. If America's your ally, they aren't going to stand by you even at the moment of triumph. Because Russia stood by Assad when he was about to fall. Trump abandoned the Kurds after they had secured a victory against the Islamic State. Uh, and the Kurds saw that lesson, and that's why when the Russians offered to strike a deal, the Kurds had, they said yes, and the Russians got them a deal that brought Syrian troops back to the Kurdish region, but left the, uh, the, the Kurdish forces also there. And on the, along that border strip where uh, uh, there had been a deal that was going to have American and Turkish troops patrol, now Russian and Turkish troops are patrolling. At the beginning of October, there was a deal under which the Americans and the Turks were going to engage in joint patrols, and those patrols had begun. At the end of October, it was the Russians and the Turks who were doing the patrols in exactly the same area. In other words, Russia had replaced the United States in this critical area. And Assad, he would be the biggest mass murderer who's like around today. Would you say that is fair? Uh, uh, there, may, there may be some competition, but I can't think of it right now. So yes, he probably <laughs> is the, 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 the biggest, if not, one of the biggest, if not the biggest mass murderer. I mean, the toll in the Syrian civil war is maybe half a million people. I mean, it's, it's horrific. Plus, maybe half the population of Syria has been internally displaced, 12 million people, and 4 million are refugees. Uh, and, the, the, and the country has been devastated. And Assad now has emerged the, the victor. Yeah. I hope he's happy. Okay, so let's uh, let's go to your career. Uh, you've been in the Foreign Service now for how many years? I'm retired now, but I was in the uh, U.S. government, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and, and the State Department for a total of 24 years. Okay. I, I think that in these, these latest hearings that Americans are beginning to get a, a good look at some of our Foreign Service people and are pretty impressed. The Foreign Service are people who serve whoever the president is, whoever the secretary of state is. They provide their best advice, but then they implement the decisions that are taken, provided they're lawful. And what you had is concern among the professional foreign service and actually among the uh, professional intelligence community that what the president of the United States was doing was not lawful. And you, you saw men and women testifying who were very professional, with excellent memories, with very, you know, kept good notes, uh, and could describe in a very clear way the illegal behavior that they observed going on and could describe how this illegal behavior damaged the interests of the United States. So you started what you say with the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. What was your job there? I, I uh, handled uh, the committee's main legislation, the, the Foreign Relations Authorization Act, and the Near East and South Asia. Included in that was uh, Iran and Iraq. And during the Iran-Iraq conflict, there was things that you 
personally investigated, right? Yes. Yeah, so, so the uh, Iran-Iraq war was like a World War One in terms of casualties among soldiers. I mean, there were trenches at the front line, use of poison gas by the Iraqis against the Iranians. Three quarters of a million Iranian young men were killed and uh, perhaps half a million Iraqis. It, it had occurred to me that, you know, although a lot of Americans had the view, well, we don't like either side, that there are always unintended consequences from wars. And so I thought that the committee and the U.S. ought to be more concerned. So I made two trips to Iraq. Iran was inaccessible during the Iran-Iraq War, first in 1984 and then again in, in 1987. When I went in 1987, actually, I began in Kuwait. I was in the city of Basra uh, on the heaviest day of shelling by the Iranians and up through to Baghdad, saw the various Iraqi leaders. And then for very peculiar reasons, I had gotten permission to go to Kurdistan in the northeast of the country. And when I uh, headed up with uh, Haywood Rankin, a career foreign service officer who also was driving, uh, we crossed from the Arab areas into the Kurdish areas. And we realized there was something very wrong. That is to say, villages and towns that existed on our maps didn't exist anymore. And we began to see what was happening. We could see uh, 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 towns where on one side of the road there were just piles of rubble, and on the other there were abandoned buildings with bulldozers. We began to realize that what we were witnessing was the systematic destruction of all the villages in Kurdistan, a, a rural area. And then we could see that the population was being relocated into what Saddam called victory cities, but they were really concentration camps. Now, why was this happening? Well, really, there were two reasons. Uh, first, Saddam, who was an Arab chauvinist, he thought of Iraq as being a leader of the Arab world. Well, the Kurds aren't Arabs, and this is an element of fascism and racism here. Uh, so he had engaged in pretty brutal repression of the Kurds. Uh, and when the Iran-Iraq war broke out, the Kurds had rebelled, and of course the Iranians had helped them. And so the destruction of villages was, was a military measure intended to uh, uh, deny uh, uh, the Kurdish insurgents a, a base of support, but it was also a, a racial measure uh, to basically reduce and, uh, a, a population that wasn't Arab. And, uh, and so when I produced the report uh, about which was basically focused on the Iran-Iraq war, not on this question. I included a few paragraphs about it. And uh, a Kurdish doctor who lived in the Maryland suburbs got in touch with me and introduced me to the Kurdish leadership. And I began to get a lot more information about what was going on, which also included the deportation of a couple hundred thousand people to the south. And there were only about five million Kurds or four million at this time in Iraq. So that was a pretty large number, and, and these people hadn't been heard from again. It turned out that they were murdered. In my mind was a policy aimed at depopulation, the, the killing of large numbers of people. Uh, and then on August 20th, 1988, the Iran-Iraq war ended. Five days later, Saddam began a series of chemical weapons in Dahak government. Now, this is not near the Iranian border. It's on the Turkish border and the Syrian border. So it's on the west of But also of the, Kurdistan. But also Kurdistan. And uh, people from Duhok began to show up in Turkey saying that they had been gassed. And uh, I was home in Vermont. And I began to say to myself, this is genocide. You know, you, you, you systematically destroy the villages and now you begin to use chemical weapons on a large scale. So I, I went back to Washington. The, as you know, the Senate is in recess in August, but uh, at, at just after Labor Day, I, I was back at my desk and I went to see the chairman, Claiborne Pell, a, a Democrat from, from Rhode Island and, and somebody who had fought in the, in the Second World War and who uh, had been a foreign service officer and, and who was very concerned about issues of genocide. And uh, I said, you know, Senator, I think a genocide is taking place here. And I described what I thought of putting, putting the, the chemical weapons attacks together with the destroyed villages. And he asked what I thought we should do. And I said, well, I think 
the one thing we can do is at least introduce a bill to impose sanctions on Iraq. Uh, you know, probably can't get it passed. It was the very end of the uh, Senate session, but at least we can introduce it. And he said, well, you've, you've got to write it up quickly because the, the last meeting of the committee is going to be, I think it was going to be later that day. So I, I wrote up a bill in about an hour, put every sanction uh, I could think of in the bill, uh, and then I gave it a, a title, The Prevention of Genocide Act of 1988. And uh, Senator Pell turned to the committee, uh, was meeting, was meeting on other business, but he turned to uh, Jesse Helms, the ranking Republican, extreme right-wing senator remember, from North Carolina, him. Uh, and asked if uh, Senator Helms would co-sponsor. And Helms took a look at the bill and he said yes. And uh, then I got a few other senators on board, Al Gore, of Tennessee, Ted Kennedy, and Robert of Massachusetts, Massachusetts right? <laughs> and Robert C. Byrd, yeah. the of West Virginia, who was the majority leader. And because I had Byrd on, and because I had Helms, I was able to work with Byrd's floor staff to get the bill not referred to committee, but held at the desk, and then hotlined. You know what that is? Yep. They call all the offices, the desk, and see if on, anybody on, a, on the floor, yeah, the see if anybody objects, and we could br- we brought it up the next day, and it passed unanimously. Now, it has to be said that <clears throat> nobody had read the bill or understood how the sanctions might affect various American business interests, but the fact that it was co-sponsored by Pell and Helms, uh, and it had the title it did. And uh, this is sanctions against Iraq. Against Iraq for gassing the Kurds. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I said to Senator Pell, you Did know, that we, have any effect on the gassing? Yes. Saddam never again used poison gas. Hmm. It didn't stop the genocide, but it did stop the, the gassing. The day it passed, I was on the floor and I said, you know, Senator, I think I ought to go out there and, you know, we've, we've made this allegation and I'm convinced it's true, but we ought to document it. Uh, and he agreed and I took along a, a, a junior staffer from the European Affairs Subcommittee, Chris Van Hollen, now the U.S. Senator from Maryland, a terrific person, as you know. And um, we went along the entire length of the Iraq-Turkey border. We spent five days and there were about 65,000 people in different locations along that border. Now, this is the era before cell phones or internet, and we had maps, very detailed maps, so we could ask people, what village are you from? And they would show us, and I'd ask to describe what happened in their village. And typically, the Iraqis' uh, uh, aircraft would come over, helicopters in some cases, and they would drop bombs. They did The bombs didn't explode. They were silent. Then they described the, the different smells. But... You know, typically they describe people just dropping dead uh, and sometimes with with blue lips. Uh, And we could match up stories from the same village by people who ended up miles apart in Turkey with no ability to communicate. So you had corroboration. The reality was that of the the 65,000 people who had fled to Turkey, every one of them was an eyewitness to this. But there was something very curious. We'd really gone, we'd wanted to find people who were victims, who had injuries from chemical weapons. And we couldn't find any of that. In fact, there was nobody injured in this population. And we were really puzzled. And then we began to realize uh, that this was a bit like Sherlock Holmes's dog that didn't bark. The reason that there were no uh, injuries is that people either were affected by the gas and died or they weren't, and therefore they were not injured. They, uh, they had just saw what happened. And uh, also, the, the absence of any physical injuries you know, also suggested that this was not a, a military campaign with conventional weapons, because if you have bullets, you're going to have people who, you know, who are, are injured with bullets. Our, our sure. report, which mm-hmm. we wrote on the plane back and Pell released, and it, it was, I think it's been accepted now as absolutely definitive that Iraq had used chemical weapons, and uh, the Reagan administration, which had been very pro-Saddam, agreed that chemical weapons had been used. But then they opposed the legislation. They opposed even cutting off the um, uh, $500 million a year that the U.S. was giving Iraq in foreign assistance, uh, basically in, in export-import credits and agricultural credits. And they argued that even cutting off aid to Iraq was too extreme a response to Iraq's use of chemical weapons against its own people. And of course, as you know, 15 years later, in 2003, the fact that Iraq had used chemical weapons in 88 was a justification for war. Uh, all of this got the attention of, of Kurdish leaders, and, and uh, you know, I ended up being, uh, becoming very close to them. 
I think you had a, a perspective on this that very few Americans have. Yeah, I've, I've made uh, 14 trips into Syria, northeast Syria, since 2014. And I was just there in September uh, talking to them. They were nervous about what the U.S. was going to do because they, they knew that Trump was not a reliable partner, but they didn't have a lot of choices. When you first heard about this phone call with Erdogan, was this like a sickening feeling that you had? I mean, what? I can't imagine having that relationship with Kurdish leaders and knowing this was what the effect of this was. I was shocked, but not surprised because, you know, nothing that Trump does. Uh, surprises um this this seemed like one of the most irresponsible things he's done it's certainly one of the worst things he's done uh because uh you know uh this is something that 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 has cost hundreds of lives and that could well cost american lives oh it's damaged the reputation of the united states uh and it's uh damaged uh you know the american role in the middle east uh, and it's given Russia uh, a huge uh, step up, and it even threatens the NATO alliance. So um, the, the consequences are, are, are huge. Okay, uh, let's take a break uh, for this word uh, from our, our sponsor, who I believe in 100%. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back uh, to a really great one for a change. We have Peter Galbraith. What did the war in uh, Iraq, our invasion of, of Iraq, in response to 9-11, when, of course, Iraq had nothing to do with 9-11. And the cost of it, uh, the cost to our, our troops, what did that do to the region? I mean, what, in other words, was this a, a disaster that is... I mean, bigger than Vietnam. Vietnam, we lost 50,000-some men over that. But the end of that wasn't, I don't think, as consequential as what we've seen since the Iraq, the Iraq War. Did this have a, a destabilization effect in, in the region? What would have happened had we not done that? Is this the most disastrous um, decision we've seen in recent history? Yeah, it, it could be the most disastrous uh, mistake that the U.S. has ever made in, in foreign policy. The Islamic State is a direct consequence of the U.S. invasion of Iraq. And, and, and the circumstances that made it possible still exist, which is why 
I think there may well be an Islamic State 3.0. You know, the first was Al-Qaeda in Mesopotamia, the Zarqawi who was killed, I think, in 2007. Now we have Baghdadi who was killed in 2019. But the disaffection, the circumstances that made it possible for ISIS, those still exist. So if, if you compare Vietnam, the mistake there, to the mistake in Iraq, you have to conclude that the Iraq war was far more far-reaching consequences. But because the threat, the terrorist threat that emanates from Iraq is not going to be confined just to Iraq. Uh, you know, in the case of the North Vietnamese, it was more or less confined to Vietnam and or Indochina. But if, if ISIS comes back, and it very likely will, it will be a threat to Europe and perhaps also to the uh, United States. Also, the, the cost of the Iraq war has been so great. I mean, I, again, I would argue that 80% of Iraqis are Kurds or Shiites. They're better off. But for the U.S., and we've spent, uh, I don't know, the total cost of the war is maybe $3 trillion. And uh, while it's 5,000 dead, there are maybe another 20,000 uh, servicemen and women who are very severely injured. I would say very severely injured, but I'd say the trauma is far, far more reaching than that. For for sure. And and of course, this was something that, that you followed and were deeply concerned with during your time in the U.S. Senate. So you have a very good sense of that. Yeah. I remember my first bill was to get just to do the study on service dogs, see what the effect was pairing a service dog with a veteran who had PTSD because there was some, some really good evidence that, that it was incredibly helpful. And I remember on the floor talking to uh, Senators McCain, Kyle, and Lieberman, and McCain was actually skeptical about this. And at one point I said, well, the study would match 200 dogs with 200 vets with PTSD. And Kyle said to me, are there enough guys coming back with PTSD to justify 200 dogs? He sounds totally out of touch. That's amazing. Isn't that something? Uh, I think most people who are looking at our foreign policy are seeing a deterioration of the Foreign Service, uh, decisions made by the president that seemingly have are, are whims, based on whim sometimes, and aren't really thought through, not surprisingly. What should Democrats be talking about during this 2020 uh, cycle in terms of trying to let... Uh, tell the American people what the effect of his foreign policy has been or lack of it and what we need to be doing when in 2021. Well, I think the, the first thing that uh, uh, Democrats ought to be talking about is the way in which uh, Trump has damaged the American brand in the world. You damage the American brand when you have an ally and you betray that ally. And of course, it means that other people don't particularly want to be your ally because they don't think they can trust you. You damage the American brand when you uh, have an agreement like the Iran nuclear agreement, which Iran is honoring, and then you break it for no no valid reason whatsoever. Uh, and you um, damage the American brand when you have the you're the only country in the world who is not part of the Paris or Paris climate agreement. There were two countries that weren't. Uh, part of it, and it was Syria and Nicaragua. And Nicaragua wasn't a signatory because it felt the agreement didn't go far enough. And Syria was just Syria. I right. mean, it was a mess. So at that point, they have both signed they up. They both signed up. <laughs> so we are literally the only country in the world that's not part of the Paris Accord. Right. Uh, and then we have Trump. With North Korea, well, North Korea still has its nuclear weapons. It's developing more missiles. And what does the president of the United States say? He's in love. 
in love with Kim Jong-un, the uh, young man who's the uh, hereditary dictator of North Korea. It's, it's quite extraordinary. So we, he, we, we have a, a president who has damaged American brand and weakened the United States. You know, his slogan was make America great again, but he's actually made America weaker again. And of course, he, he would like to uh, break up the European Union. He's been a big supporter of Brexit. Uh, and he's a uh, weakened NATO. He says he possibly wants to break that up. Well, whose agenda is this? Vladimir Putin's. Uh, well, thank you, Peter. Thanks for all the work you've done, uh, along with all our Foreign Service folks. Uh, what are you doing now? I mean, you're, you're trying to help individuals, right, escape the situations they're in 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 Syria and who have been children who have been sort of in the custody of ISIS, right? Yes. Uh, there are children who are in uh, three camps. They're uh, children who were brought to Syria by women who joined ISIS or were born in Syria to these foreign women who had, had joined ISIS. And uh, these camp, they, the camps are guarded by the Kurds, but on the inside... They're run by ISIS because the Kurds don't have the resources to keep these radical women from raising the next generation of terrorists. Uh, if you think about what's in the interest of the child, it's not in the interest of these children to grow up to be uh, suicide bombers, uh, murderers, rapists. And so one of the issues, how do you get, get the kids out of the camps and into an environment like a foster home environment where they would be uh, removed from these influences and and, and uh, you know brought up in a more normal way. If these kids remain in the camps, well, first one possibility is that the Syrian government will take take them over, and everybody in the camps will simply disappear. But uh, uh, if they if they actually grow up in the camps, they'll never get out of them because uh, no country is going to want to take them back, and they can't integrate locally. So they they would almost have a life sentence for having been for having been children born to ISIS mothers or ISIS parents. And so you're trying to get a number of them. Trying to get them out, ideally back to their own countries where they could go back to you know relatives or into the childcare system of their own country. But if not that, at least out of the camps and into a childcare system that the Syrian Kurds might run. So you're leaving uh, tomorrow for the region? I am, yes. Okay, we'll leave it at the region. Good. Okay, because I know there are security issues. Thank you, Peter, for your well, service to our nation. Well, Alan, thank you for the, the service that you've done in, in the Senate. And uh, I think uh, also on foreign policy issues, because we discussed them when you were in the Senate. But I think also for the extraordinary work uh, that you did on behalf of those who have served our country, the men and women in, in uniform, uh, who've come back and have had difficulties. And I No, no, thank you. <laughs> no, no, thank you. <laughs> there. There. Peter Galbraith, thank you. Well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. This episode is brought to you by the effortlessly scrumptious bite of Skinny Pop Popcorn. Imagine this, perfectly popped, endlessly delicious kernels, a symphony of just three simple ingredients, popcorn, sunflower oil, and a sprinkle of salt. No compromise, just pure snacking freedom. And hey, if you're up for a twist, dive into flavors like zesty white cheddar to sweet and salty kettle. Every bite's a delight, light and oh so tasty. Shop Skinny Pop now. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. 
Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.